This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. You found your way to Burned by Books, a podcast for obsessive readers and writers who love to talk about contemporary literature. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Courtney Zoffness's Spilt Milk, a series of connected essays that she describes as memoirs, the nature of motherhood is examined and upended. Her son's blooming anxiety about school and home, accompanied by nightmares, feels feels increasingly like a maternal inheritance passed down from her parents, who live in fear of the next coming disaster or predator, preppers before it was trendy. The question of what we give unintentionally to our children morphs into the question of how we should give and sacrifice for those we do not know in the purposeful effacement of self and body for a common good. Courtney follows this thinking as she tries to understand her friend's relative ease in choosing to be a surrogate, to bear a child for another. In each subsequent essay, a snapshot picture of Courtney's life in Syria, Germany, New Jersey, and in eras of relative ease and those of trepidation, pulls back to reveal those friends and family and acquaintances that have touched upon key moments in her evolution as a writer, a thinker, a teacher, and a mother. So often, she turns the narrative eye to draw out another's struggles with empathy and hospitality to their stories. Memoir as a genre is flooded with other people, other experiences, in Courtney's hands, as the narrative departs from the single story and welcomes others. Courtney's openness to seeing herself through the eyes of others. What does her grandmother think of her appointment as a teacher in Freiburg, Germany, where monuments to the extermination of her people live everywhere? What does her son's sudden obsession with police officers and the work of discipline say about her mothering? How does the shattered glass under her husband's heel speak to their marriage into a deep history of loss and trauma? These are the great awakenings of Courtney's memoirs, the clear-eyed examinations of the meaningfulness of others to what too often feels like the claustrophobic self. Written with a delicacy and beauty, the essays of spilt milk are vulnerable, open, wounded, proud, and infinitely empathetic. They avoid comparison, and they speak with a voice that feels like truthfulness. Welcome to the show, Courtney Zoffness. Thank you, Chris. That was the most 
gorgeous introduction. Wowie, I'm going to have to re-listen to that over and over for my ego. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, can we start with the form of Spilt Milk? It comes, sure. it comes with the subtitle Memoirs, and it feels both like an essay collection and a memoir. Did you always plan to have these genres working with and against each other in a narrative whole that also works in quite distinct parts? Uh, you know, having that word memoirs came pretty late in the game. I think um, this was in collaboration um, with McSweeney's uh, and my publisher. I think the word memoirs sort of evokes the personal. Uh, and I think essays can do all kinds of things. And we can talk about that too. I think um, since these are so personal in nature, and since they do, I hope, kind of interweave into a larger whole, that felt like an appropriate subtitle. Yes, and that that interweaving, I think, is is an interesting thing to think about with essays. Obviously, the, the kind of braided essay is very popular now, but th these feel different than that. They're, they're less braided and more related and and that makes me think of that sort of like the the dna of of passing on that you're really interested in especially at the beginning of the collection how do you view those essays as sort of working together well i think this you know sort of is an organic uh opportunity to talk about the book's origin story because i was working on fiction i'm trained as a fiction writer uh and became a mother and started to write these one-off essays to tease apart some complicated feelings I was having or observations in myself or in my son or sons, eventually it was two, <laughs> that I didn't understand or wanted to better understand. And I wasn't thinking about them as part of a book at first. I was writing them as independent pieces. And then when I gathered them up, uh, I saw these really natural, now I can say this retrospectively, but they all sh shared these um, concerns and ideas in common. I think as writers of whatever genre, we often have preoccupations that we maybe can't explain or can't escape. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and um, that is certainly true for what became this book. I just, I was attending to, um, the various, you know, complicated feelings I had around mothering sons in particular and my own daughterhood. Um, and so I think they kind of naturally coalesced in this way. Mm, that's, I, I think for me as a father of sons, I, yes. I, I, I took away many of those shared connections that built up as the, as the collection goes along. The title, Spilt Milk, resonates in all kinds of ways in these essays. There's the incredibly funny and painful story of your pumping breast milk in your car as passerbys gawk at you not crying. Oh, what was that? I said not pleasant. Yeah, no, not not pleasant, but I feel like maybe kind of universal because there's so, especially in the United States, so limited support for for rooms or places for women to get away who are trying to balance professionalism and and motherhood. There's crying over spilt milk, 
the idea of split as in curdled milk, but also your worry about passing on anxiety via your DNA to your son. I was incredibly touched by your worry for him as he exhibits some traits that you think of as your parents' hypervigilism uh, as they prepare for certain dangers and catastrophes. Did you come away from writing this essay with a different sense of how nature versus nurture works in child rearing? And do you feel like anxiety is something we can possibly pass along through spilt milk? Wow, what a rich question. Um, I mean, maybe I'll first just talk about how I see the title and you pointed to so many ways. I hope it resonates. Uh, and then um, move on to the anxiety piece. I, I mean, I think spilt milk for me also, it evokes parenthood and childhood. And obviously the adage, no use crying over spilt milk, which I think is another way of saying, get over it, mm -hmm. you know, um, move on. And I think this book presses against that advice because I think there's a lot of value in looking at the past, looking at accidents or incidents uh, in order to move forward. Um, so that all the ways in which I felt like that title touched my concerns, made it seem appropriate. Uh, in terms of anxiety, you know, it's a funny thing because, you know, where my kids are in, encapsulated uh, in the published book is not where they are now. As people who continue to grow, it turns out they get older. Children. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I have evolving feelings and thoughts about uh, the passing on of all kinds of things and what we can and can't control, um, which is to say we can control very little. But also, I, I mean, in terms of anxiety in particular, I was just thinking about how, um, you know, there is at least the the kind of hinting at this fear that it's something that you can pass on genetically. Yes, I, I still believe that, you know, as someone who I believe has physiological, biologically embedded anxiety, as opposed to sort of run of the mill nervousness and seeing some ways in which this presents and one of my kids in particular, whether or not that came from me, you know, who's to say, but I think certainly uh, it's possible to pass it on, not to make any parents or potential parents listening feel panicked. Yeah. Does that, does that add a, a kind of onus and, and weight and, and even guilt in, in parenting that yes. kind of avoids, um, uh, avoids fixing you you sort of feel like well i've given i've given that special gift and there's no way to no way to take it back it's i mean isn't that parenthood right just like <laughs> guilt from every direction <laughs> it does and then i think maybe an optimistic way to consider it is that as someone who had anxiety as a small child who was seeing a therapist at age seven and trying to learn to breathe normally, I maybe feel better equipped to help them if they're struggling because this is a struggle I myself had. Uh, and so have the language to talk about it and maybe can suggest some things. So it's really double-sided. Mm-hmm. Spilt Milk is a, a set of memoirs that are very often narrated through the stories of other people who have touched your life in one way or another. 
One of my favorite examples is the essay, It May All End in Aleppo, a story of your relationship with Saul, a Syrian who escapes the civil war there. Would you be willing to read just a short excerpt from the beginning of that essay? Sure. It may all end in Aleppo. In my Aleppo, the coffee was bitter, the figs supple, and the evergreens open-crowned. I gorged on pita and labna, and after every meal, I smoked a pipe of shisha and watched mint-scented clouds swell and scatter. I rode an eastbound tram from Al-Jamilia to Bab al-Faraj, tracing the skyline out the window with my finger, up and down spires, up and over domes. Everything was the color of oatmeal, and the sky was an electric blue. I zigzagged through a 14th century sukh with vaulted honeycombed ceilings and lost myself among mounds of spice. I passed cooked sheep's heads, teeth intact in their semi-smiles, and pyramids of pottery and rug stacks taller than their merchants. I passed a stall devoted entirely to brooms. It was hard not to think of the Silk Road on which the Syrian city had been a central stop, especially when someone trotted by on a donkey. Of course, this was the Aleppo of the 1960s, well before I was born. And as a young American woman, I likely couldn't have done these things. But I did. I went to all these places. I picked pomegranates from local shrubs and tucked them into my pockets. 2016. The faces of Aleppo flicker on our eyelids en route to sleep. That wide-eyed boy, skin and hair talcum powdered with debris. A sea of anemone fingers grasping at rations. Sopping corpses, 230 all told. Lined up like tombs after locals pulled them from the Kiek River. One image forces my eyelids open. A red-shirted toddler, chubby cheek pressed into the sand, lips a figure eight, water lapping at his forehead. He is the same size as my two-year-old. He has washed ashore on the Greek island of Kos after fleeing from a city just north of Aleppo, as has his five-year-old brother. I have a five-year-old too. Thank you so much. This experience you have of, of really a, a kind of rich and deep history you know, connecting to the to the Silk Road, but also to um, you, you know a country that uh, avails itself to um, to a, a wondrous um, sensuous experience, and then understanding how quickly that can all be torn apart by the violence of of civil war, it lands heavy. Um, and as you, especially as your mention of of your own children of the same age and trying to trying not to think too much about what it would mean to have your own children in those circumstances. What did it feel like watched for the people who live there for their whole lives, it torn away? Well, the story of my connection to Aleppo is through a man I call Saul in the book who hired me to ghostwrite his memoir. Uh, and I learned Aleppo through him having never gotten to having never visited it physically myself, but in order to write his full-length memoir, an autobiography of sorts, I spent countless hours reading the history, listening to and recording his stories, 
conversing with him about all manner of things, looking at images on the internet, uh, and finding that in the process of inhabiting, you know, his body, at least narratively, because I wrote it in the first person, uh, that I became attached to a city I'd never visited. And that when it fell, and suddenly it was a city everyone was talking about, I felt this sort of personal loss, which seemed to me like equal parts sort of silly and profound. Silly in that it, it's not my city uh, and I'd never been there and my connection to it was tenuous, uh, but profound that the act of writing developed, you know, created this, this real connection. And then you have this experience in which Soul is is able to escape Syria, uh, but ends up in your conversations, kind of being in in Trump's camp, mm -hmm. and it's clearly devastating for you as it signals a recycling of state-sanctioned racism and and violence. Why was this this shift, or maybe it's not a shift at all? Maybe it's just something that is a complication of humans. Why was it important to you, and does it? Um, and does it reflect in some way about the the recycling of of history? I think it does reflect the recycling of history. And I think complication is the right word to use here because I imagine it would have been a different kind of story if, you know, this is, I think, sort of a craft concern, sort of where do you begin and where do you end? And what's the ultimate sort of, aim of any piece of writing and what is what is it you're trying to communicate and in one version I become Saul's ghostwriter and we develop this kind of connection and I develop a connection to the city of his birth um, and then feel sad when it falls and the end uh, and in another version there's the story continues uh, and I find out uh, this terrible complication, which is that these same forces that forced him to flee and rewire his whole life uh, are the same forces he may be inviting into various other lives with his vote. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of complication and and terrible irony that seems to you know populate so many experiences, immigrants in Florida who seem very quick to to invite the harshest punishments for those who either via diaspora or desired um, moving come to this country, and yet it seems like that's the story of all history, not just okay. the United States. Yes. I love and and am also frightened by the scenes of teaching in, in Spilt Milk. <laughs> they they draw on my own um, anxieties, uh, a, a lot of my own feelings of inadequacy in the classroom. But there's there's a big difference, and it's it's connected to the way that gender works in the classroom. Teaching is clearly deeply important to you, but in this collection, it's often a site of intense vulnerability and sometimes harassment. You describe a student's story in your writing class that explicitly talks about his desire for you, his teacher. 
his your embarrassment and fear about his intentions battles against your desire to maintain control of the teaching environment. You're telling a larger story about being a woman in the classroom. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, and interestingly, in the aftermath of that story, which I'll retell in a moment, I wrote it down much the way this whole, you know, this book's origin story is my trying to gain some understanding for myself even about complicated situations. And it was just, you know, collecting dust on my hard drive until um, a friend of mine, Shelly Oria, who I think um, you had on this show. I did. She's amazing. Yeah. Put together uh, a Me Too anthology and was soliciting contributions. And suddenly there was uh, a hunger for stories like that. So just the way in which I think that movement opened the door is something I, I really want to highlight. Um, but the scenario that was the seed um, of that essay was my teaching an introductory literature class at a college where I don't currently teach, um, but did at one point. Uh, and I gave a craft assignment, which I, I never gave again, <laughs> more than anything he or she or they wanted. I was trying to show that imbuing a character with desire can create a kind of impetus for momentum and, and built-in conflict. Uh, and then I had the students go around and read their first lines so we could show the range of desires, tangible and intangible, great and small, and how um, the wanting can come in all shapes and sizes. And one male student who I did not know well read about or more than anything he wanted to take me atop the desk at the front of the room and have his way with me in front of the class. Uh, I think what complicated <laughs> this situation was not only that he wrote it and felt entitled to write it, but that he read it aloud in class um, in the same space that he was describing where I was standing at the front of the room and to this day, I still can't tease apart what he, what he wanted. Uh, what was the aim there to challenge me? He didn't seem like a particularly aggressive type. I mean, I can try to sort of pin him to with one adjective or another, but his face and expression were completely inscrutable. It still remains a total mystery to me what the aim of that was. Um, and I should say in general, I actually don't feel uh, like I'm in a vulnerable space at the front of the classroom. I love to teach and I, I feel pretty confident in that role and in that space. This was an anomalous and extreme example of that forced me to reckon with what it meant to be a woman. And I was younger too, <laughs> um, which meant I had less experience and perhaps less confidence. I, I think from my reader's perspective, it, it was an act of violence. It and was. it didn't it didn't matter if he seemed like an aggressive type. What mattered is that he felt very entitled to to act out with language a, a violence against you. And that um I forget the line that you have, something about a, a man's yes is never more powerful than a woman's no. Is that something close something to like that? Yeah. And 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 I think he was violating that in a knowing way and in a way that he hoped would make you feel that way. And it and it 
it was very sickening to read both for the your specificity of experience but also because it resonates with so many small and large stories that my um my women colleagues have experienced yes i think um you're right to call it a violence and part of what made it extra creepy was that it was almost subtle i mean not the story that he read but just the presentation was so even mm-hmm. that it seemed as though he were reading about you know a character's desire to take a walk hmm. i i recently spoke with a friend about the the silent too often silent weight of harassment that pervades women's professional lives in your case it begins with um, long earlier uh, with a direct abuse at the hands of a doctor, but continues in ways large and small as the apparent cost of being a woman. What was it like to make visible the invisible wounds of abuse? And do you see your work as helping to allow others to make that kind of persistent abuse visible? Gosh, my most you know optimistic self would hope you know it would do anything in that realm, offer other women that kind of permission. I should say that as a person who's not shy in my walking, talking life, uh, it was surprisingly easy for me to um, just sort of call all of these experiences. I mean, I should say that some of them I hadn't thought about in a while, and it was kind of this amazing associative exercise that as soon as I started to write about my, you know, creepy, abusive OBGYN, I I was recalling, you know, being assaulted at a, at a nightclub and, and like all the ways in which these experiences are, I don't want to say normalized, but part of the just the fabric and expectation of being a young woman, at least in my experience and in this country. And I had not attended to them with any real, you know, weight until I started to write through them. So the process of of assembling them wasn't challenging. It was more like illuminating for Mm -hmm. even for me just like, oh yeah, and then that, and then that, and then that, and how sort of quickly I could create a list. And I, I mean, what's most upsetting to me about that is that they they existed as sort of the background noise until you called them, called upon them in, in your writing. Exactly. They're so, so present and so expected. That's what's, that is what is insane to me about the the culture of an abuse that we live in is that they can be a background uh, texture of an everyday life. Yes, without a doubt. The question of how to bring goodness into the world is a thread that ties these very different seeming essays together. For me, it's clearest in your fascination with your friend's decision to become a surrogate for strangers after having had mostly uncomplicated pregnancies. You describe it as an act of radical empathy, and your friend calls it, I believe, a a sacrifice while you are still alive. Can you say more about how such sacrifices and acts of empathy fit into your worldview? Yeah. uh, You know, I remain 
mesmerized and awed by this friend who gave her body um, for, in this way uh, for a couple of strangers. I mean, I had heard of um, gestational surrogates performing this generous act for a family member who couldn't conceive. My friend just entered this journey because she felt as though she could be useful to a couple that couldn't conceive on their own. Uh, and I was tracing, I was trying to trace in this essay called Holy Body, my, why I was so riveted by her journey. I mean, yes, it is so maybe objectively, I don't know if I can speak for everyone, but sort of objectively interesting or, or um, impressive. I think but for I sure. Think, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I want to be a mother who raises empathetic, generous children. This seems to me like probably the most important thing I could do as a mother, whether or not I can do that or have any control in that space. Again, circling back, who knows? Uh, but, you know, more than my kids being like super bright or great athletes, like I, I just feel like a la, you know, Saul who escapes terror and votes for Trump, I just want so much to have children who can um, contribute goodness. Uh, and so I think what I discovered in trying to figure out my sort of obsessive fascination with the, all the intricacies of her choice and all of the ways it became complicated uh, was that this was an act I myself <laughs> would never do. It really delineated kind of the limits of my own um, empathy, empathy in the world, or uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but that's not a way it would present for me. Um, whereas my friend Carrie, who became a surrogate, is really convinced that people are more comfortable being generous when it doesn't demand much of them. Mm -hmm. and I really am, you know, continue to think a lot about that idea. What does it mean to be generous? What demands does that idea or should that idea impose or generate in a life? Uh, and you know, just the ways in which that looks different for different people. And there's something about that porousness of the body that happens with surrogacy that, you know, for you is a kind of a kind of hard limit. And for your friend is, uh, you know, the clearest sign of a, of a sacrifice because it does cost her and it ends up being it not does. an uncomplicated uh, pregnancy. And I, you know, I, I wonder is, is because that it feels like that hard limit of the body and it's, and, and that wall we, we create around the thing we call ourself is, is something that would be a limit for me too. But is that, is that the problem is that you and I have that at that limit when the world requires of us a, a different kinds of kind of sacrifice? Yeah, we're really getting into some existential terrain here. I, I don't, you know, I think there are lots of ways to be active and generous. I don't know if the only ways are, is everyone giving a kidney or, you know, a lobe of an organ or their uterus to a family to, to borrow, as my friend Carrie says. <laughs> uh, 
I think there are lots of ways in which you can be participatory uh, and altruistic. Uh, and I will also say I used a word like porousness, I think, in that piece in describing how Carrie is like psychologically compartmentalizes in a way that I do not. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I'm just not good at it. And I think in some ways that set her up more easily for this role because she was able to focus on one thing and another thing and um, be clear-eyed in what she wanted from being a surrogate and not, I mean, she still holds it up as something she's really pleased to have done um, and, and a meaningful time in her life, despite all the complications. So I think being built differently, you know, bodies both as, you know, places where you can hold babies for yourself or for others, but also just the way, the way our brains are wired differently. I think all of that is relevant in this conversation. Maybe we'll move from the existential to the, <laughs> to the spiritual. Um, okay. Judaism and your own uncertain feelings about your faith echoes throughout this book, a kind of push-pull between your interest in what religion can teach you about bringing kindness and connection into the world and your own wavering at times faith in holy body, Hebrew intones aphorisms about your body's connection to a spiritual principle of acceptance and connection to God and others. What, what does faith do for you in this collection? I was surprised after all of these essays were finished and assembled how many of them touched on faith, which I don't see as central to my day-to-day -day existence. Um, and I think, you know, being raised Jewish, um, not super observant, but hyper aware of Jewish history, which was, you know, recent history or contemporary history for my grandparents, uh, there's a way in which you feel a connection to the faith that has nothing to do with capital G God. You feel a connection to a people's history. You feel a connection to an identity that, you know, is important to preserve. Uh, and there are traditions that I find beautiful uh, and rituals that I find meaningful. But faith somehow, I guess, as I was reckoning with questions of goodness and empathy uh, is one, uh, you know, vehicle for imparting these ideas. And I think those are the parts of Judaism that I feel the most affinity to, even as I have big question marks around God. Um, so I, I think I do and did in this book wrestle with how I can be attached to a faith that I doubt. Hmm. That, that's so well said. Before I let you go, I, I was wondering if there are particular uh, essay collections or memoirs that you feel excited and, and dedicated to right now. And what in general is calling to you from your bedside table? Uh, I always love this question because I read pretty omnivorously. Uh, and I will say by way of a caveat that I, I'm working on fiction now. So I've been reading a lot more fiction, though that was true even when I was writing this book. I think I straddle genres um, and, and read 
on both sides. Um, so one, um, I, I guess it's not an essay collection. I think it's a memoir, but you know, it's innovative both structurally and at the sentence level that I read recently and loved is Heaven by Emerson Whitney. Um, and this is, I think it's coming out in paperback in a month or so. It's, it's about um, bodyhood and childhood and gender. And it's in conversation with, with various thinkers, um, a la sort of Maggie Nelson style. But I, th I found the personal stories in it to be just riveting and structurally nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, You're not the first person on this podcast to say Maggie Nelson style. <laughs> ah, yeah, okay, yeah. I think that's a whole genre. I was pretty late to the party in reading um, Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House, uh, but that also just blew me away. Uh, and for those who haven't read it, it's about Machado's being in an abusive relationship, and she examines it through a slew of interesting and kind of experimental lenses. Uh, and I, I loved it for its language, its innovation and its immersiveness. And I think those are, those are qualities I crave in, in a book. Um, it is immersive, sometimes terrifyingly. So I found despite yes. being these sort of like fragmented things with lots of white space between them, it yes. is so terrifyingly immersive. It is. It is. I think, I mean, Again, I think being a fiction writer and writing a book of nonfiction, you know, gives you certain, um, you know, maybe I shouldn't generalize, but certain skills that enable you to, to, to grab a reader in ways. And then I just started this novel uh, that I can't wait to return to, and I'm only a quarter of the way through it, but I just want to keep rereading these gorgeous sentences. It's called History of Wolves by Emily Fridland. Oh, I, I, I love, I love that book. And she's a oh colleague gosh. of mine over at Cornell. Um, oh my and she's a, a, a magnificent person as well. I love to hear that. I am, this is not a brand new book. And I, at my age, I don't feel the need to chase the newest, shiniest thing. <laughs> uh, I just can't get over like the sentence level gloriousness of this book mm -hmm. and just want to savor every page. So I, I don't know who, who knows what will happen. I'm just recommending the sentences. It is, I, I mean, I, I agree entirely. Uh, and I feel like that there's something about it atmospherically um, yes. on the sentence level where you just, first of all, you feel Minnesota, like this yes. kind of Arctic wave that just rolls over you. But then also there's nice resonances with your own work in terms of like thinking about what does it mean to nurture others? What does it mean to pass things on being both uh, tied to family, but but at, at loose ends? Um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot there. And what does it mean to be a girl? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and her short fiction, I, just as good. So I can't wait. tear into some of that as well. I absolutely will. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for a really wonderful conversation. And I can't recommend enough Spilt Milk, which is which is out with McSweeney's and newly in paperback. It's still with McSweeney's? It sure is. I think it comes out in paperback on September 27th. And it's got a, both covers, the hardcover and paperback are beautiful. Thank you. Uh, this was a this was a thrill. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you.
Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Courtney Zoffness for sharing her beautiful memoirs with me. There are links to purchase Spilt Milk and all of Courtney's recommendations on the website at burnedbybooks.com, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. Next week, we welcome Pulitzer Prize winner Andrew Sean Greer, talking about the sequel to his bestseller, Less. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>